the diamond, I realized Empathy Museum presents A Mile in My Shoes. These are a pair of tan mid-height heels. They have minimal stitching on the front with a zip going down the side and a square toe at the end. Underneath they are slightly scuffed with bits of grass coming off the end as if they were worn to a smart garden party event. These shoes belong to Sue. This is her story. My day starts with the same walk each day. I love walking anyway, and when I'm travelling, I like to do walks in new places. But there's something about walking the same walk along the same beach every day and noticing the absolutely minute changes in things, whether it's wet, dry, autumn, spring, what's coming out, what's, what's been happening. It's kind of a meditation, and it's just a lovely way to wake me up and reconnect me with this place that I love so much, and I think I've just found my roots here. Probably when my time comes, I might be asking for my ashes to be scattered out in that bay um, so that I'm dispersed here, and uh, that's the place I think I would need to be. My name's Sue Gill, and I'm an independent celebrant. I live here in the beach house on the west shore of Morecambe Bay. I'm sitting here in the lookout spot. I'm looking 25 miles across a completely empty bay at low tide and the reeds are rustling a bit and telling my story. My most important work, as well as writing and running courses, my most important work is working with people to create ceremonies to mark milestones which are really important in their lives. The obvious ones that spring to mind are birth of a child, marriage ceremony, or a funeral for someone who has died. But there are many, many other occasions as well, issues around health or loss of health, home, work, friendship, lots of different occasions to celebrate and call for a gathering and some kind of a ceremony or celebration. How did it all begin? Nearly 50 years ago, when our first child, Dan, was born and in the middle of the North Yorkshire Moors, we had a naming ceremony for him and we invited some other people who'd got small children and hadn't christened or named them. Why it was a naming ceremony was it was not appropriate for us to take him to a church and have him baptised by a vicar, which, when you read the small print, means I am promising to bring up this child in this faith and the mates you've got there as godparents, you've appointed them to supervise this process. And if any of those people understood what was happening on the day, they would be blenched and thinking, oh, I I didn't know I'd signed up for this. That was not for us at all. Uh, We wanted something which was a celebration, and we wanted something in landscape. So it was on the side of a hill, and there was poetry and music and 
colour and a little bit of performance and a fire and flags and a beautiful strawberry tea in the village hall afterwards. So it was a naming ceremony. We did quite a few naming ceremonies, uh, each one different, each one in a different place. We always reflected the context, who these people were, what time of year it was, uh, where we were in the country. Then we were working with a theatre company and uh, people within the theatre company wanted to have either a betrothal ceremony or a wedding ceremony. So we began to work on those and they were joyful and gorgeous and lovely and everyone pulled out the stops for that. These would not be legal ceremonies but if the couple wished, and I would often recommend that, at some point, maybe a couple of weeks later, they would pop along to the town hall on their way to the supermarket or something and say, oh, and by the way, a couple of weeks ago, we were married and we've just come to register that fact with the state and exchange the right formal sentences that they have to exchange in front of the registrar and get their marriage lines and then it's all legal, which seems to be a wise and a good idea. As you get older, your friends start to die. These can be people from your friendship group, colleagues you've worked with for a long time that you've got very close to, very often younger than we are ourselves. And it shatters the, your whole circle of friends and people that you work with. And we're going to do this ourselves. This isn't the time to bring in a complete stranger, a professional, who will just bring the catalogue of things we need to choose which hearse, how many cars, which buy a coffin from his catalogue. We've got the skills, we could make the coffin or decorate it, we could create the ceremony. Sometimes having a funeral director just to do the necessary admin and paperwork isn't a bad idea, but they are not calling the shots. The family is or the friends are. So there's been some extraordinary funerals within this particular circle. The paradox in my life and in my work is that when I'm doing these funerals, usually I know the person. So technically I'm a mourner at the funeral, but on the day I must put a lid on that very firmly. My job is to hold the brokenness in the room, in the chapel, in the field, wherever we are having this ceremony. People need to know that there is somebody with their hand on the tiller. We will get through this, however awful it is. And that's my job on the day. The role of children in funerals, I feel very strongly about. Every few hours in the UK, children are bereaved of a mother or a father or a close relative. There used to be a belief that the children mustn't come to the funeral. It'll be far too upsetting for them. And that's the cruelest thing that anybody can ever do. In the courses we've been running to train people to do what I do, it must be three or four times the same story has come up. I remember the story of a woman telling her father had died. She was seven or eight years old. The family, there was no way, she was completely excluded from not only the funeral planning, but the funeral itself on the day. 
and the hearse arrived and the, all the relatives were coming out and walking down the drive uh, to the cars and she sat outside under a bush alone and she watched them all get in she saw the coffin she saw them all drive away to whatever she had no idea and then returned inside the house to someone who was there just to look after her and she never got over that she spent the, decades afterwards with this unresolved issue. She went into becoming the most fantastic funeral director and funeral arranger and training other people to do the most wonderful work. So it's something that that moment, that day, absolutely altered the course of her life. And that story in various versions has been repeated a few times. Um, and then there are other ghastly days, a teenage boy, let's put it bluntly, was messing about in his bedroom with a belt and a hook on the back of his bedroom door and it went wrong. It was not an intentional suicide at all. So when the day came for the funeral, the entire academy, all the pupils were in the church. It was the boys who were howling and it was their girlfriends who were trying to comfort them. And we had screens up at the side with Facebook postings, scrolling through, um, and we got through the service, but I spent more time before we actually started walking up and down the pews and talking to the young people to say, it will be all right and we will get through this. This, you know, this is a ghastly day uh, to, and we've lost him, but, um, Together, we will get through this. Whereas I've had stories from other people when there's been a similar situation in a traditional church with a vicar who didn't know that young person anyway, with the same pews and pews of howling young people and completely ignoring it and just motoring on through to get to the end and everybody out the door. So no two funerals are the same. And as the celebrant or the funeral officiant, we've got to be aware and awake to what's happening in the room at the time. We make very strong connections with places, so when people come to me and say, I'd like a scattering of granddad's ashes or I'd like a naming ceremony, there'll be a place that's really special to them and that will be where something significant has happened. It might be where there was a proposal of marriage on that little beach on the shore of a lake or it might be a bridge with a view or it might be a jetty over the lake because he always used to row his rowing boat round here and this is where we want to scatter his ashes. So you're led by people's own backstories. So the family meetings that you have, sometimes they can take hours, to probe and try to f find out who this person was, what their passions were, and to say, yes, it's fine for Grandad to be buried in his favourite gardening clothes. Don't put him in a stiff black suit. His corduroy trousers, that cardigan with the darn on the shoulder. It's comfortable for you, it's comfortable for him, it's right. Let's do that. And when you give, suggest it and think you can have permission to do this, um, it seems to make such a difference to people, um, how that happens. Sue's story was produced by Dan Fox. Her shoes are part of a growing collection of footwear hosted by the Empathy Museum's A Mile In My Shoes exhibition. We, you know,
The shoes and stories come from all over the world. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram to find out where we are going next. <laughs>